Hey guys, this is Angel Donovan with another episode of Dating Skills Podcast. We're at episode 69. How much do you really know about women's sexual anatomy? About how they physically get aroused? About the journey a woman goes through during her lifetime in her own sexual discovery? Is a 20-year-old woman at a similar place as a 38-year-old woman in this journey? All women are different at different stages of their journey and get aroused differently in different ways, timelines, and to different levels as they go through their journey. As men, this can be difficult for us to understand as our own sexual journey is very different. If we can develop more empathy as men for where an individual woman is at in terms of her sexuality, we can help her discover herself and become more fulfilled sexually also. That doesn't just make for great sex. It makes for deeper intimacy, more meaningful relationships, and ultimately will help us develop and learn more about our own sexual expression. This is a difficult subject to get good information and advice on. Women have as many sexual personalities as they do personalities. Their sexual anatomies are nearly as varied as their facial features. And that variety can be challenging to men to understand it and to make the most of sexual relations with them. Today's guest is Sherry Winston. Sherry stands out because she has taken a very open-minded approach to understanding women's arousal, exploring everything from anatomy to tantric sex to other ancestral and spiritual rituals to better understand how women get aroused. This was documented in her 2010 book, Women's Anatomy of Arousal, Secret Maps to Buried Pleasure. The American Association of Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists gave her the Book of the Year Award, saying that it is the most comprehensive, user-friendly, practical, and uplifting book on women's sexuality I've ever read. I personally found the information in her book different and enlightening in many places, and I learned some completely new stuff about sex and women's sexuality, which after my 10 plus years doing this is a pretty rare occasion. So I'd recommend every guy read it, it will definitely open up your minds to some new and important things about women. To hear exactly what I think of her book, you can read my review of it on datingskillsreview.com. You can find that and the show notes, the MP3 download and the interview transcript of the show at datingskillsreview.com forward slash DSP69. I'm Angel Donovan and this is the Dating Skills Podcast. This is a 14-year ongoing mission to discover the truth about what works in dating, sex, and relationships to become a better man. Join me as I leave no stone unturned. Chase down every expert, role model, and mentor with insights to get us to that goal as fast as possible. This show is about bringing you the best of that information so that you can take it in and change your life for the better step-by-step episode by episode. Sherry, thank you very much for making the time to come on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Great. So what we'd like to do first is get to know you a bit better as a person, where you are in life and where is your kind of sexual journey in your case, because, you know, that's kind of your topic speciality. So how old are you now and where do you live and what do you do? I'm about to be 55 and I live in uh, Kingston, New York, which is in the Hudson Valley. And I'm a holistic sexuality teacher. And you might not have heard of one of those before because I made it up. Oh, great. I was going to say I didn't. I need to be told what that is. <laughs> I made it up because there wasn't a good name for what I do. I used to be, my background before I did this is that I'm a certified nurse midwife, gynecology practitioner, registered nurse, 
licensed massage therapist. I was a childbirth educator and a doula. And my focus for 25 years really was about birth predominantly and also women's health and holistic healing. And I stopped doing that work uh, 15 years ago and transitioned into what I do now, which you you could think of it as I'm now a, a midwife for people's sexuality. Really, in some ways, it's the same path, but I just went deeper in. Because, yeah. you know, underneath all the birth stuff is the sex stuff. Yeah. Just to briefly, what kind of areas did you study on your journey to this? Because I understand you looked into Tantra and other things. Oh, sure. I've done, I mean, actually, just to go back a step, I actually think birth and yeah. the process of birth and the women I worked with was the greatest teacher I could ever have about sexuality. And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit of my personal journey, which was, so I was teaching childbirth education classes and midwifing and trying to help women during their pregnancy, learn what they needed to learn so they could have the best possible birth, possibly even an ecstatic or orgasmic birth, which is one of the possibilities, but at least a really primal, natural birth. And I was teaching and learning about this stuff for over 10 years before I realized that I had unconsciously been using everything I was learning and teaching for myself in my own sex life. So I knew my sex had gotten better and orgasms had gotten easier to have. And I had a wonderful husband and we had a fabulous time. And things just got better and better and better over those 10 years. And literally, I had one of those epiphany experiences where I suddenly realized I'd unconsciously been training myself. So using sound and pelvic floor muscles and intention and awareness and heart opening practices, all of those things had unconsciously seeped in. At that point, even though I was still midwifing, I got really interested in kind of if I came this far in the journey without even trying, without doing anything on purpose, what would happen if I started studying on purpose? And at that point, purely for my own edification, at least at first, I started studying Tantra and Taoist sexuality practices and some Native American sexuality practices and also studying modern Western sciences, understandings of the body and the brain and sexuality and orgasm and all that. And then I was kind of surprised to find that what I was learning there, I was actually bringing back to my midwifery. And that was enhancing my ability to help women in their births. And I started to see how it was all part of one integral system, which was also pretty mind blowing. Anyway, when I retired from birthing babies, I was teaching some classes and I started teaching more classes about sexuality. And it just became very clear to me that my next calling on my path was to really help transform our individual community and cultural planetary relationship with sexuality. So that's what I'm doing. Thank you. Thank you very much for that overview. Where are you at with your own relationships? Are you still married today? Not to that man, no. Okay. Uh, (laughs) No, my husband and I completed our marriage after 20 years, and I have a a very lovely... Yeah, thank you. It was a beautiful completion and a good 20 years, and I'm partnered now with a man that we've been together almost nine years, Okay, great. Thank you very much for that. The topic today is arousing women holistically. The first thing I recognized when I was reading your book was that you emphasize sex positive culture versus sex negative culture. And I realize it's something we haven't talked about on the show, but it's a growing kind of movement that we don't really understand exactly what it is. But you obviously have a very clear idea of where that's going and what that is. Could you give us an overview of what sex positive culture really is about? I can, but I will give the caveat that it might be defined differently by many different people. Uh That's interesting. So really, yeah, it's a very loosely defined term and I think also very misunderstood, but 
in general, in fact, in my new book, and my the first book is Women's Anatomy of Arousal, but I just finished a book called Succulent Sexcraft, and I actually tried to define it a bit in there. So to me, it's about people who generally agree that sex is a natural, normal, healthy, and important part of who we are. And that we would like to create a world where sexuality is understood and valued, where it's respected, where people behave responsibly, right? Respect and responsibility are two sides of a coin there, where we help people learn how to experience all of the joy and pleasure of which we're capable. My second book, the one I just finished, is really about that. It's how can we how can we use all the tools we have to expand our abilities to have amazing sex with ourselves and if we choose with other people. So I think that's a general understanding of sex positivity. There's also large segments of that community who also feel that there's a sacredness to sex, uh-huh. like the Tantra community and many of the other sacred sexuality lineages that sex is inherently somehow holy because it's what makes life. It's what made each of us and that it can be part of your spiritual path and your journey and part of your, the sacredness of your life if you choose. And there's many understandings of that, but I would not say that that's everyone in the sex positive movement, although that's quite common. So would you say this is a movement that's growing and how's it developed? What have you seen from it? I think it is a growing movement. It's almost hard to, to call it a movement, though. There's so many different pieces of it. Yeah. And they're moving at different paces in different parts of the world. In the United States, we're moving towards accepting gay marriage, for example. And that's a big change from 10 years ago. So I think of that as part of the sex positive movement that in the country I live in, we're finally embracing that you can love whoever you want right. and be married to whoever you want. So that's so a piece of it. It sounds um, like an important value is openness and being non-judgmental and accepting of each other's sexualities as long as it's not hurting others. That's a great way of saying it. I think of it as sort of celebrating diversity, not even just tolerating it, but appreciating mm-hmm. and celebrating this wonderful diversity as long as everything is consensual. And that's an important word that no one is transgressing anyone else. So that would be a part of it. And then there's a big community of people who are transgender and intersex who are trying to create a more positive world for their sexuality to express. So I think that's one piece of it. The sacred sexuality world has continued to bloom and blossom, and that's becoming more common. I think 10 or 20 years ago, if you said the word Tantra, people would have no idea what you're talking about. Now at least they have some clue maybe what that's about. And yet I also want to note that there are many parts of the world where this isn't happening. And I'll also note culturally, equality of the sexes and sex positivity go hand in hand. So we have parts of the world where women don't have rights or the equal rights with men. You usually also have cultures that are more sex negative, where things are more rigidly defined. Could you define sex negativity as well? How how that works? Because I was interested in some of the examples you gave in your book. Yeah, so I think sex-negative cultures tend to be very fearful of sex and women. They go together. So in sex-negative cultures, you have a taboo or a rule or a law. And if you go outside of that, you will be punished. You can go to jail or you can be killed. So in a sex-positive culture, we have guidelines and understandings based on a compassion and respect and responsibility. 
there's still guidelines. We're still channeling the sexual energy in a way that will lead to a positive, loving, healthy outcome for everyone. Sex negative cultures are trying to restrain and control and dominate that sexual energy and women because they go together. And if you step outside those boundaries, uh, you will be punished. So that's one of the big differences, I would say. And then there's an openness. The internet has been an amazing force you know, for good and bad. I mean, we could, we could knock some aspects of it, but it's been an amazing force for getting information out to people, for helping people find other people like them so they can create communities and support each other. In a, a sex negative culture, there's also a lot more control of information. So those are the countries that are trying to keep information from getting to people. Right, right. Obviously, there's some examples of that in the Muslim world and the Middle East, for example. Did you want to say something about this? Well, I just want to add, again, I'm in the United States, so we still have both forces at work here, too. We still have states where they don't teach any sex education to kids or they teach abstinence-only education. And we have an incredible number of states where they are not mandated to teach scientifically, medically accurate information. So basically, there are states where it's okay to teach whatever you want, even if science and medicine completely disagree with the reality of what you're saying. That's interesting. So there's a lot of divergence across the U.S., which is one of the most advanced states. Would it be California or somewhere like that? Exactly. Yeah. But if you go to Alabama or someplace, not so much. Okay, great. Have you seen other countries in the world where it's pretty advanced as well? I don't know whether in terms of sex positivity, it's something a bit more natural maybe to their culture. I think the Scandinavian countries are a great example. Great sex education, very low rates of unintended pregnancies, low rates of disease. So, you know, Western Europe varies from country to country, but there are a lot of countries that are so much more natural and accepted that that's what humans do. And in every country, there's all these subcultures. So it's sort of hard to say with a blanket statement. But I will say that I think that there are more and more people moving towards a sex positive outlook an approach to sexuality. And that's encouraging to me. Yeah, it is. It's very encouraging. One of the interesting things I picked out from this discussion of sex positivity was the use of language and the language that we're used to using around sexual parts and the limitations we currently have. Could you talk a little bit about the limitations we have with language? Yeah. Isn't it crazy that we just don't have yummy, comfortable, sexy ways to talk about body parts that are sexual and the activities we might do with them. So we've got medical scientific words and they don't tend to be sexy, right? Intercourse is not a sexy word. Yeah, it's it's not something we want to say to our partner. Right, you don't want to go, would you like to have intercourse with me tonight? I mean, it's just, (laughs) we're like, we don't talk like that. It's just not. And some of those words Other people might not know what they mean. When I was a medical practitioner, and if I used the word, if I was giving someone a safer sex talk and I said, if you let your partner ejaculate in your throat, you could get a disease, she might not actually know what I meant, right? But if I say, if you let your guy come in your mouth while you're giving him a blowjob, she knows what I mean. Right. But as a medical professional, I'm not really supposed to use words like common blowjob because their profanity and their street slang. And so those words are charged and we call them dirty words as if a word could be dirty. And so we're in between. We, we Neither language is yummy and comfortable. And then there's the vague euphemisms, which we use a lot because we're not comfortable with the topic and we don't have good language. So down there is right. the big one for women, that their genitals are just down there. This dark, mysterious place uh, that's far away. 
it's just, interesting. In Asian culture, often they'll call it little brother, for instance. Oh, yeah. You know, it's the same rule. It's, it's very common there. Yeah. And then there's also medical people who are so uncomfortable with sexuality, they can't even take a, an accurate medical history or sexual history of a patient because they will use things like, are you sexually active or are you having relations? Are you being intimate? Even our medical people don't necessarily have the ability to be comfortable with sexual language. It's a big stumbling block. My approach is all words are just words. They mean whatever we make them mean, and they're all fine. Right. The clinical ones, they just, they're not cool at all to use. And the dirty mm. ones, they seem a bit cooler to use. And obviously, they're all in the films. We feel more comfortable with them, but we don't really feel comfortable with them in the bedroom for most of us. It's something that we can't kind of have to work on. But is that the solution? Because obviously, we need these for better communication. We need to be able to talk about this stuff. But is it to use dirty words and become more comfortable with those? I think it's to find your own comfortable vocabulary, whatever that may be, and then find the vocabulary you can use with a partner. You can go the way I went, which is I decided I would use any words in all words. Mm -hmm. um, I also borrow words like yoni is the Sanskrit for female genitalia. And it's a beautiful word, yoni. It's, it's nice. It rolls off. It's round. It's yummy. It's a nice word. But if your partner doesn't know right. stroke yoni, yeah. he doesn't necessarily know what that means. And I think we also want more specific words when we're talking about female genitalia, as I think we will talk a bit more about. There are many different parts there, and we might want something stroked and something else rubbed and something else lightly tickled and something else really firmly held. And if we don't have words for all the different parts, it's really hard to communicate with a partner about what you want. And if we can't do that, then we're going to have a hard time getting what we want from our yeah. partners. Yeah. So practically, for some, for example, a shy guy at home, He's going to end up with a girl he's interested in with a relationship in bed one night. What would you kind of suggest him if he's very hesitant about what kind of words he should be using? And especially, I think, starting to use dirty words like you hear, but you kind of feel the pressure. A lot of the guys, obviously, they're watching a lot of porn these days. Yeah. yeah. That's where they get their reference. And obviously, that's pretty much all dirty words. Yeah. And I'll just throw this in. We were talking about the I mentioned the Internet and the pluses and minuses. And yeah. one of the minuses is while porn has normalized sex in a lot of ways, it's also not a good place to get your sexual education. The techniques you see in porn often don't work on real other human bodies. The language you see being used in porn might not be a turn on to your partner. I'm a big fan of talking a lot before you get sexual with somebody or checking in as you're being sexual. So a wonderful question to a partner would be, and, and you might even want to start with where you are, which is, I feel a little awkward asking this question and then say what's true. I'm not sure what language to use, what words to use. I don't want to insult you. I'm delighted that we're here in bed together. Everyone wants to hear that. I'm delighted we're here in bed together and I want to be able to talk. Are there words that really work for you? Are there words that don't? And then you can find out that it could be like the word bitch. Like, oh, don't call me a bitch. Like, that's just not yummy. Yeah. People have specific trigger words, right? I think that's a word like right. it, it triggers them. Maybe it's a negative experience from the past or, or, or just something right. their reference says, like, bitch is a really yeah. bad word. I don't want to be called that. Exactly. So it's a great thing. And it's a wonderful, almost kind of an icebreaker to starting the conversation that's actually going to help you have a better sexual experience. Tell me a couple of the words that I should totally never use with you. Yeah, yeah. And okay, great. There, I'll never use those words. What are the words you like? And you might find a partner going, I don't actually have words I like either. Isn't this a problem? Let's make up a word or let's invent a word. Or let's just have the word we hate the least and practice using it. 
And that's how you create your own comfortable vocabulary for yourself and a partner. Yeah. Maybe you hate the word boobs. Maybe you'd rather have breasts. Right. Maybe your partner thinks the word tit is like so exciting that you decide, all right, I don't really like that word, but I'm going to learn if it's an ongoing relationship. Yeah. I'm going to learn to desensitize myself because it's a word that's a turn on for him. Yeah. I think to start off with the first step, it's like a continuation of whatever conversations you've been having. Because the way someone interacts with you, like, are they using dirty words in their usual language? Has the girl called you motherfucker before just playing around, right? Teasing you right. or whatever. Sure. Then she's probably going to be okay with that kind of language in the bedroom. There's some indications that can help you also just from your relationship as it exists. So it's like a continuation. It is, although some people it's going to be different when you're kidding around in a bar than it might be when you're right. actually in bed. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And the other thing is, if you're having these kind of conversations, it makes it easier when you get to the, do you like to be licked this way or that way? <laughs> you know, like, And those kinds of feedback things really make sex be phenomenal. We have, I think, a cultural map of sex that we don't talk about it. Yeah. Whether it's porn or a romantic comedy, it doesn't matter. They see each other, they kiss, the clothes go flying, they have amazing sex without any kind of a little to the left. <laughs> I would like that. It would feel, you know, and we don't know how to have erotic feedback conversations that actually are part of the turn on. Right. We don't know. Nobody taught us to go, oh, baby, I love that you're stroking me there. And it would feel even better if you did it really softly. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just like that. That is great. I love that. Nobody taught us how to do that. So we're also very like, I want to ask for something, but I don't know how. And I don't want my partner to feel insulted or told what to do. And we can also get really lost in that. Uh. And yeah. the woods of that. The way you just put it, the example you just gave was really good because it gave a lot of positive reinforcement and then a bit of encouragement and direction. Yeah, well, I had to learn to do that. And that's one of the things I teach. Yeah. <laughs> I teach over 50 classes. So I have lots of classes. But one was, how do we give erotic feedback in a positive way? And I didn't know. And once I started figuring out, oh, I actually need to give feedback if I want my partner to learn how to give me exquisite pleasure and I want to get feedback so I can give my partners the pleasure they deserve. It's like, okay, well, how do we do it? I don't know. I never learned this. So it's all learnable though. That's the key. Yeah. Excellent. I wanted to dive into one of the big subjects in your book, of course, is the anatomy of the women's sexual parts and how that all works. And it struck me that first of all, as you say in your book, many vaginas, prissies are very different, which I don't think a lot of guys know. They kind of expect as something similar they're going to come across each time. So to get started, where would you start to explain? Well, I'd like to start with saying that vulvas are just like faces. Everybody has two eyes and a nose and a mouth, and yet we look really different. Yeah. And there's all different kinds of beauty. So that's a, a good thing to know. The basic parts are pretty much the same parts. Uh-huh. But the size, the shape, exactly where they are in relation to each other is extraordinarily different. Again, like just like faces. I will also mention that many, many women are very ashamed and have a lot of negative feelings about their genitals. Why is that? We were trained um, from when we were little. There's all these commercials about being not so fresh and jokes about smelling like fish and a lot of cultural down there. It doesn't even have a name. Such a foreign territory. So a lot of women don't really own their genitals. Not all women self-pleasure. So for women to learn the, an accurate map of their genitals and explore them and get in touch with them literally and, and learn what they have and how it works, and then we can teach our partners what we have and how it works. And there are some things that tend to work really well for most women most of the time, except when they don't. <laughs> right? 
So I'll talk more about the genitals in a minute, but I just have to throw in one of my favorite little maps, which is that for most women, our sexual energy is I call pussycat energy. And for most guys, their sexual energy is a bit more like puppy dog energy. And you don't play with a pussycat and a puppy dog the same way. The cat is not going to fetch the ball. She might bring you a little birdie when she's in the mood, but you want to fetch, you want a dog. So if we start understanding that our sexual energies can be very compatible but aren't necessarily operating the same way, then it becomes easier to understand how you might want to approach pleasuring a woman if you're a man, which is often might well be the opposite of what works for you. Yeah. We've talked a lot about anticipation in past episodes. We had uh, a neuroscientist. uh, Start understanding that our sexual energies can be very compatible, but aren't necessarily operating the same way. Then it becomes easier to understand how you might want to approach pleasuring a woman if you're a man, which is often might well be the opposite of what works for you. Yeah. We've talked a lot about anticipation in past episodes. We had uh, a neuroscientist uh, talk about how that works in the brain, Andrea Kachevsky. So I guess you're referring in some part to that. It is part of that. And it's also that the pussycat energy or the energy that most women have more of when it comes to sex, I never like to be absolute, is the energy that needs to open and that takes time. It's slow and it's cool and it has to get fired up. And most men, their core sexual energy is that energy of, of penetration and it's very hot and fast and fiery. Yeah. And so we can all learn, as a woman, I can learn to fire my energy up faster And my men and my men, they can learn how to slow their energy down and spread it out. And so it's all the same tools that we use, but we might learn different things. The female energy tends to go from outside to inside. So when you're exploring your own genitals, if that's if you own female equipment, or if you're a man and you're visiting and wanting to give pleasure to female equipment, you really want to start on the outside and the outer. Well, you want to start with the whole person, the whole body, the non-sexual parts. Yeah turning on the brain, and then bring the energy into the sexual parts. But still, if you're in the crotch, as it were, you still want to go on the outer parts and get that all big and juicy and engorged uh, before you go inside. Those are sort of general rules of thumb that will work most of the time for most women. Yeah. Now, the specifics, that's your home play assignment with any particular partner. The thing about female genitals, like I said, everybody has all the parts I'm going to name. Women have a a network of arousal equipment. We tend to think of the head of the clitoris, what most people think of as the clitoris, but it's actually just one part, the head of the clitoris. I like to think of that as the jewel in the crown of erectile tissue. It's super sensitive and it's a wonderful part and should get all the attention it deserves. But we have this whole circuit, this interlocking network of erectile equipment And most of us don't know it's there. We're not playing with it. We're not getting it turned on. It's not getting engorged. And we're not getting the effects of having the whole system activated. So beyond the head of the clitoris, the clitoris itself has three parts. There's a shaft of the clitoris, which is underneath the hood. Then the clitoris branches into two legs, which are like a wishbone, and run down the, actually the bone, the pubic arch bone. Women also have erectile tissue under the labia. They're called vestibular bulbs, and there's one on either side underneath the labia and the outer layer of muscle. And those are just sadly unknown and ignored part. In fact, for most women, the best part of her vulva to play with first would be the vestibular bulbs. 
This is a rule of thumb, of course, but if you start with the bulbs, which you can play with from the outside of the outer lips and get them big and puffy, right? get them engorged, just like penises get engorged, that's a great way to start play. And then maybe some clitoral play. And then when all of that outer part of the network is nicely swollen and engorged, at that point, it might be time for penetration with something like a finger. And when you are inside the vagina, there's two more erectile structures. There's the urethral sponge, which is above the roof, and the perineal sponge, which is under the floor. The urethral sponge is a tube of erectile tissue that surrounds the urethra and is the source of all of the cultural stories we have about the G-spot. I don't use that name because it's not a spot and the man it's named after didn't have one, but it's actually a tube of erectile tissue. But playing with that when a woman's at a high level of arousal, will usually feel highly pleasurable. If she's not aroused enough and you're inside her too soon, it's just going to not feel good. And then there's also erectile tissue under the floor. And so when all of those structures are engorged and big and puffed up, they all work. They're connected. Yeah. And so at that point, playing with almost anything gets everything. Now the one on the floor is, uh, just to be clear, it's towards the anus? It's, it's, it's along the bottom? The, yeah, it's if you were putting a thumb inside the vagina and pushing down towards the butt, yeah. it would be under the thumb. And it's actually in the wall between the vaginal canal and the anal canal. Yeah, I think one other thing that would be interesting is like the cervix and how that is, because um, I know that can be uncomfortable for some women if you touch that. The cervix is the part of the uterus that dips down into the back of the vagina. I was taught when I went to school, and um, this was clearly the focus of a lot of my education, I was taught that the uterus had nothing to do with sexual arousal or sexual pleasure. And in the United States, at least, that's the message that we're giving women and doctors are giving women because we here can sadly say we have the highest rate of hysterectomy in the world. We take out more uteruses in the U.S. than anywhere else. Doctors routinely tell women it will not have any effect on your sexual response. And I knew that wasn't true decades ago because I would have patients who'd had hysterectomies telling me that it had affected their sexual response. And I believed them. And so part of me going, I call this the hunt for buried pleasure, where I started discovering the parts that were missing from my education and other parts that were missing and kind of putting it together into this new map, which is what the Women's Anatomy of Arousal includes, sort of the heart of the book. Well, it's really the crotch of the book, I guess you could say. Anyways, so what happens actually is that the uterus is a player in arousal and orgasm. And so what happens as a woman gets aroused is the uterus moves up and forward. And of course, the cervix is part of the uterus. It's not a separate structure. So as the uterus moves up and forward, the cervix is pulled up and out, uh, not out, totally out, but out of the way of the back of the vagina. And so if a woman is having intercourse or some other kind of penetration and she's not aroused enough, you can be banging into the cervix, which is usually uncomfortable or possibly painful. Right. The uterus also actually moves during a woman's fertility cycle. So it can be at different places at different times of her cycle. So a position that worked great during the ovulation part of a woman's cycle when the uterus is highest up already, and then is when she's most easily turned on during ovulation, mother nature's plan, right? Yeah. At that point, um, it's not usually a problem, but maybe two weeks later, right before she gets her period or when she's just started her period, it's sitting lower down and that same position might be banging into it, be uncomfortable. So it's really great to know that it's a mobile organ. And in fact, um, what happens during orgasm is the uterus and the attached cervix actually bounce up and down 
part of the orgasmic response is the uterus kind of going bum, 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 bum during the orgasm. And you can actually feel that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of cool. Homework assignment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. Well, I have met, a, I think, a couple of women in, in my time who did contact with the cervix, but I think it's extremely rare. Well, and there also are nerves that enter the vagina in front of and behind the cervix, yeah. and they can be highly pleasurable spots to play with. Um, most women, the cervix itself is not so much a pleasure spot, but in front or behind it can be. Yeah. And then there's some women who actually really like having their cervix played with directly. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. But those nerves, the places where the nerves enter in front of and behind yeah. are hot spots for most women if you play with them when she's already very, very, very turned on. Right, right. So it's kind of like that the more aroused someone is, the more relevant the deeper parts of her mm. anatomy are going to be to stimulation. Yeah, and I think we have a tendency to do what I call premature penetration. Yeah. And by that, it's not just, I'm not just putting this on men. As women, because we don't understand our own arousal and our own genitals, and understand these sort of maps and models of we're with a male partner and he's got a hard on and he's ready and we're, you know, we're kind of turned on, we're medium turned on maybe. We think it should be time for penetration. And I always say to women, if there's anything in your vagina and it doesn't feel absolutely mind-bogglingly awesome, it's not time yet for it to be there. That's the rule of thumb. So women can be a better guardian of our gate and kind of go, it would be nice to have your penis inside now, but I don't think I'm at the point where it would be absolutely awesome yet. So let's let's get me more turned on. Right, right. And, uh, yeah. And it's not necessarily all women that have the confidence. Someone will, will be say like, you've got to put it in me right now. But I think the majority of women don't tend to be as confident, even when they kind of really wound up or very you, aroused. Yeah, well, you know, arousal, in my new book, in Succulent Sexcraft, I, I talk about arousal a bunch so people actually understand. Arousal is an altered state of consciousness. Compare it to going up a flight of stairs with not turned on at all, being the ground floor and step number 10 is orgasm. And so you can think of arousals, I could be at a three or a seven in that journey up the stairs. So there's just sort of levels of how turned on you are. But the stairs also have depth and width. So it's also how deeply are you in your arousal trance at any level? So you could be at a pretty high level arousal, like even an eight or a nine but your trance is pretty shallow. Whereas if you take more time, play on the stairs and really, really get everything turned on, you could be at a a seven, but deeply, deeply, deeply in that altered state of arousal trance, something might feel fabulous at that point. To explain the guys at home, does 10 mean orgasm? I'm saying 10 is orgasm for my imaginary flight. Yeah, right. So it's getting to that stage of uh, physical arousal where you're going to come basically. Whereas, because I think that makes more sense when you're talking about this depth thing, people can understand that more as an emotional, how had you, or like being in more in state, kind of being more lost yeah. in yourself. Yeah, you could be at high level arousal, but get there really quickly yeah. and not be in such a dramatically altered state. It's like, I mean, it can't really, it's not very deep. Like you said, it's very superficial. It yeah. doesn't really affect your brain so much. I know for a guy, if it's very, very quick, literally a minute later, it would be hardly as if anything happened. Exactly. If it was really, really shallow. But yeah. if you have a really deep, long emotional connection where you can be lying there for minutes, just like kind of blown away. Yeah, or hours. Um, <laughs> and it's not just emotional, but it's actually brain. I mean, it's brain, body, mind, body, brain, the whole thing. 
it's literally how deeply we're in an altered state. And when you're really deeply in an altered state, you ever have those sexual experiences where it's over and you kind of come back into your body and the present and suddenly you realize your head is like hanging off the foot of your bed. Yeah. And you're like, how did I get here? Like you've so been in that trance, you don't even, aren't even aware where the, the edge of the bed is or where the walls are anymore. That means you were deeply in that trance state. Right. Um, so we've all got like a journey to learn about how we get into this. It's like a journey for both women and men. Yeah. in order to be able to get to these different states of depth rather than mm-hmm. just the pure physical arousal. Although obviously with women, it seems like they need a certain depth in experience just to get to the depth of arousal in the first place. Is that Generally speaking, that's yeah. a generalization because it can be really different for different women or at different times or with different partners. But for most women to get deeply, thoroughly, totally turned on and into that deep, deep arousal trance, it's going to take 30 to 45 minutes. However, I want to say for guys, you can get into that same deep, deep trance state. And so, yes, it might seem easier for most guys to kind of speed through the arousal journey and get to their orgasm. But everyone can learn how to sort of slow it down, spread it out, to get really skilled at kind of bringing the energy up and letting it down and building it up and expanding it. Because We can all, men and women, have absolutely astounding arousal and orgasm experiences that I didn't even know were possible. And now I know not only are they possible, but they're learnable. And we can learn it by ourselves. I call it playing our own instrument. Like we really can get great at playing our own instrument and make amazing music by ourselves, really getting deeply into that sort of improvisational music-making trance. And the more skilled I am at doing that with myself, the easier it's going to be to play an amazing duet with a skilled partner. So all of those skills we can learn with ourselves really can also enhance our partner play. So we can have pretty mind-boggling experiences and not just serendipitously or not just because we're madly in love or in lust, but because we can create in the setting and the container and do the kinds of things that will enhance the trance. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to touch on is that I think a lot of guys aren't aware of how women develop their awareness of their bodies and the journey they have, like many of them have to go through over their lifetimes or maybe that, you know, their early years. So could you give it for like a, a bit of a woman's perspective, how she might go from being kind of unsure about parts of her body to some experimentation? Just so guys, when they're meeting different types of women, they can get an idea of where she's coming from in her sexual experience. I don't know, this, it might be a bit hard to it's do a, that. but <laughs> No, it's a great question. And I think I can answer it. For starters, most women need to learn their path to orgasm. For most guys, it didn't take you that long to figure out how to jerk off and come. But for women, first of all, half of teen women don't self-pleasure. They don't touch themselves. They don't pleasure themselves. They're not exploring and experimenting. They're not learning how to play their own instrument. So I'm always telling women who have not yet had an orgasm, which is uh, probably 10% of women and probably significantly higher for younger women. Or have orgasm challenges. Uh, Sometimes you have them, sometimes you don't, but you don't quite know why. So the first thing that women need to do is self-pleasure. Solo sex is our learning laboratory, our rehearsal hall. It's where we run experiments. It's really important part of our relationship. So if you self-pleasure, you can start learning how to move through the arousal journey, how to have orgasms, what works for you. For guys, if you're meeting women particularly younger women, they may not self-pleasure and they may not have had orgasms yet, or they may be a challenging thing for them. So it's important to understand that to support and encourage them, 
to explore them with themselves. Most women, by the way, also are not orgasmic from intercourse. And that's one of our cultural maps that's really wrong because in the porn and in the movies, whatever, women are always coming from boffing away. And the truth is that's not usually the best way for women to learn to have orgasms. So if we have a map that says when you get to that activity, you're supposed to come and it doesn't work, people think there's something wrong with them. Instead of going, oh, this is a bad map and it's a learnable skill. You can learn to come from anything. You can learn to come with intercourse and you can learn to come from anything else, including hands-off, full-on, full-body orgasms. But those are advanced skills. Right. So, How does a woman learn to activate different parts of her anatomy? Is itself? this like an accidental journey for some women? Well, They'll be in bed with a new boyfriend or a new guy and suddenly things start responding differently. Is it because there's different positions are involved? There's a different, how would you say like women kind of progress through these stages? Because most women don't sit at home trying to figure this out, I guess. The ones I talk to do. Okay. Because <laughs> they've read your book. Once reading my books are doing that. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, that's why you get a book like one of the books I put out. So you can yeah. actually have a guide. It's easier with a guide. Right. It's easier if somebody gives you an accurate map of your genitals it's easier if somebody lays out a way to understand arousal and what it is and how you can move through it and how you can enhance it. Because the truth is, yes, of course, you can touch yourself with your hand or a vibrator. But if you also know you can use your breath and how to use sound and how to use your pelvic floor muscles, well, you've just got a lot more tools in your toolbox for enhancing that experience. So what we can do with partners and what happens with partners is, well, sometimes they've learned something we haven't learned yet. So you might have a partner that's encouraging you to make sound when you were being really quiet before. Yeah. Um, by the way, this is for you guys too, because guys, you guys are really, can be really quiet. Sound is a turn on for women too. So learning how to make sound, or you might have a partner who has discovered, say, the vestibular bulbs. Maybe he doesn't even know the name of them, or maybe he read my book. I've gotten emails from women who I've never met thanking me for my book because they met this guy and he was a great lover. And they said, how did you know how to do all that? And they said, I read Cherry Winston's book. <laughs> Oh, seriously. I've gotten emails like that. So you might have a guy who knows about the vestibular bulbs and plays with them. And it might be the first time anyone's put energy and attention into a really lovely and gorgeable, arousable part. And so, of course, that's a fine, fine thing. And being able to talk about it and communicate about it. What are you doing? Say you come across a girl who doesn't seem to be orgasmic. It depends on the culture. But in some cultures, they say, uh, she'll kind of say, I'm, I'm not sure. I think so. Which means that she isn't, right? She hasn't she hasn't experienced it yet and uh, she's probably yeah. just uncomfortable about it. So you get that kind of if you talk to them about like, oh, do you like, you know, do you play with yourself? Is this something you should encourage them? I typically encourage the girl to do it, but they're often very embarrassed about it. Is there any ways you would talk about that? I mean, do you think it's a positive thing for the guy to try and encourage her to play with herself basically when she's she's got time to herself? I think it's a wonderful thing to encourage and I think it's a great opportunity to model not being shamed and to encourage her to not be shamed and yeah. to own her body and to learn about it and look in a mirror at her genitals while she's pleasuring all of those things as long as it's said in a loving supportive way not in a kind of leering kind of like ooh, i can even imagine you if it's said in like a porn kind of a as if it's for the male pleasure if it comes across that way to her yeah that might not land so well but if it really comes across as a caring like look, sweetie, you know, this is your body and you're just learning what you got and how it works. And the more you learn to play your own instrument, the better the experience is going to be. And I want to support and encourage that. Then that I think is a very loving thing. And just keep reassuring her when you're with her. 
that her genitals are beautiful and delicious and smell great and you love looking at them. And you, you can ask her and she'll probably, you know, you can say, do you think they're ugly? Because I think they're gorgeous. I think a lot of girls are worried about smell. And so you can say, I just, I love how your muff smells. I mean, to me, that's yeah. like the sexiest smell and taste in the world. Which um, is really true. If you like the girl, it's typically you're going to be your response to it. I would hope so. Right? That's what it's there for. Mother Nature planned it to be pretty yummy. So the, tell her those things. You can even ask her what are the things she feels shy, ashamed, or embarrassed about. Maybe in this, most women think they're too fat or they're too big or they're too small or they're too something. You can find out what her thing is and let her know, God, I love your ass. I love the curve of your belly. I love the size of your breasts, whatever size they are. They're breasts. I mean, come on. How? That's a good thing, whatever size they are. So help her reprogram her stories about herself. That's a real gift that you can give her. And of course, it will come back to you in good ways because the happier she is with herself, the more confident, the more comfortable, the more she discovers her own pleasure, the more fun she's going to be for you to play with. Yeah. So. so besides encouraging her to play with herself, would there be other things you could do to help her on her journey, depending on where she's at? Yeah, give her a copy of my book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. I don't know anything else that gives women and their partners and read it yourself. That kind of a guide that I don't know anywhere else that the map exists that's accurate and useful. For me, that was really incredibly empowering and expanding of my pleasure. And make it fun and playful. Not all like serious. It's like fun and it's playful and, and an exploration and a creative improv. So when you bring that attitude towards your experiences together, that will spill into her other parts of her life as well. In terms of um, going from orgasmic to multi-orgasmic, is that difficult for a lot of women? Is that kind of like a big jump or like to give guys an idea if she says like, oh, I've only ever, I only have one orgasm. Give guys a bit of a perspective about that. But is I, there a very small percentage of women that are multi-orgasmic? Or? No, I don't think so. I think it's a, a reasonable percentage of women have learned to have more than one orgasm. It's another learnable set of skills. I think it's easier for women to learn to go from having one orgasm to having two or more orgasms yeah. than it is for men to learn how to be multi-orgasmic and to have non-ejaculatory orgasms. So I think that's a appears to be a much harder challenge for men to learn non-ejaculatory orgasm and so forth. Yeah. But for women, sort of once you get to one, the more attuned you get to yourself and the more skilled you get, it gets pretty easy to get to two, three, four dozen orgasms. I mean, dozens. I mean, women do have really awesome orgasmic capacity and women and you can have dozens and dozens and dozens of orgasms or orgasms that go on for five minutes or an hour and women can learn to ejaculate and have ejaculatory orgasms and you know, everyone can learn how you can have orgasms that are centered in different parts of your body you can have uh, heartgasms and and you can have laughgasms and sobgasms and energy orgasms and there's just a amazing orgasmic menu, that menu is not the right word, uh, realm that we can visit and experience and connect to. And I think everyone has that potential. So that's why I'm always talking about all of this stuff is learnable. You don't have to learn it, but you can if you want. <laughs> One of the kind of horror stories that I had come to me about that quite early on, and I don't know if other guys have heard about this and might have similar concerns, is that one of my friends was practicing it for a while. He didn't quite do it properly. And he had he got a lot of pain. There's like some semen shot back into his ball or something um, through mm -hmm. this exercise. That's where he explained it. I don't mm -hmm. know what scientifically is possible. 
Is this something you've come across and is this an obvious mistake that could be avoided easily for guys who are interested in learning that? Well, I think there's the energy part of male multiple orgasm. And that's about circulating the energy and not letting it stagnate in your pelvis, in your genitals and in your balls. So there's an energetic part. And then there's also a physical part. So for men who are sort of trying to practice this and learn it, if they have that experience, really just some massage actually um, can move that, relax that back. So I suspect that it was kind of a combination kind of energy and physical that he had that experience. I don't think it's that common. And most men naturally, if your your balls hurt, you're just going to like reach down and rub them because they're yours. You know, men are much more comfortable touching their genitals than women are. You have to touch your penis every time you pee ever since you were first get out of diapers. Right. So men are much more comfortable touching themselves just in general. So some massage can help with that. But in the future, I would certainly experiment for someone like that or that experience with making sure really that you're moving the energy because I think it's mostly stagnant energy that and congestion, blood congestion. That's the problem. In your book, you talk about the journey of men and women together. Can you give us an idea of how, because we've been talking about the journeys are quite different in terms of how we develop our sexual awareness. How can we make these coincide better? I think if we're open to recognizing that our partner can be a wonderful teacher, I can learn things from my partner about male sexuality. He can learn things from me about female sexuality. We can learn from each other about how to, again, it's like making music together. If you're playing a duet with somebody and you're playing the piano and they're playing the violin, whatever, you've got two different instruments, but you're going to learn how to make them work together. And you can appreciate each other instead of making the other one wrong. Because it's really easy for women to make men wrong because you guys are always in such a hurry. You're too genital focused. You're pushing too hard, whatever. So those are instead, if women can kind of go like, oh, men have got this sexual energy that's really driving and that has a lot of genital energy and focus to it. And so I can learn from men how to take my more diffuse feminine kind of sexual energy and I can learn how to fire it up faster and, and pull it in and, and have more genital focus in my and I can also learn that what my partner might like is more genital attention earlier on in our sex play. And that I can give him that. And we can have the understanding that just because I'm touching yours doesn't mean I'm ready for you to touch mine. And conversely, my partner, and I generally partner with men, so my men can learn how to slow down, spread it out, cool their energy down, how to let their whole body get turned on instead of just their, their cock. And they can learn how I, like many women, want my whole body turned on before my sex parts are touched. And so he can learn what my pace is and what my signals are. And we're also teaching each other, what are our signals? What are the signals that I want more of this or less of that? And that's an ongoing learning process too. So if we approach our sex partners as teaching partners and learning partners, then the whole thing can be fun and everything's fun. If when something doesn't work, we can go, oh, well, that didn't work. I wonder why. Let's think about that. So not that we want to do all of that talking during our sex. We might want to do it after, before, in between sexual play. But we can have a a lot of fun learning together. That's a good point to make, that you don't want to start a full-on conversation about about (laughs) how your sex life is while you're actually in bed. That's going to come and completely blur it. Exactly. I think we should have time that we just talk about our sex and we're not having it. 
I think we should have times when we're just having our sexual improv. I also think it's great to do what I call play pens, which are, are times and spaces set aside just for learning about something like how to give erotic feedback or how you like your genitals played with or what kind of erotic fantasies have been going on for you. So you can actually set up little games that are just like, let's take a half an hour and play a touch and feedback game. And then we're done with that. Or let's take uh, five minutes to play this game or let's take an hour. Just it's all imagination. You're just using your imagination to come up with creative, fun learning games to play with each other. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you very much for that overview. Rounding off the interview now, a couple of questions we ask everyone. First of all, who besides yourself would you recommend for high quality advice in this area? Someone mm. you respect or someone you've learned from? Well, a woman named Jaya, right. who's a teacher that I've actually, we've co-taught retreats together. I love what she does and have a great deal of respect for what she does. Another sex educator, I love. I have a, a bunch I love, so it's a little hard. Um, Reed Mahalko is a fabulous sex educator. Yeah, we've had him um, Great. Amy Jo Goddard is a great sex educator. The trouble here is I'm going to forget people and then go, oh, my <laughs> Yeah. I love Barbara Corellis and her books are wonderful. Uh, Urban Tantra is one of my favorite books. And two wonderful Tantra teachers, Mark Michaels and Patricia Johnson. They've got a bunch of books about Tantra that are some of my favorite books about Tantra. Yeah, I'm sure I'm forgetting all kinds of people I know and love. But those are a few. And um I think that just having the attitude that sex is something to learn about yeah. is really what I want to look for in teachers, that this is learnable. And it's not like some people got really lucky and the sexual orgasm fairy sprinkled them at birth or something. You know? totally. I really look for people who are trying to say, hey, yeah, I learned how to do this and so can you. And here's some steps you can take to learn. Yeah, that's some great recommendations. Thank you for those. Mm-hmm. Last question is... The top three recommendations, what would they be from you to help men get results, get better at this with women as fast as possible? What would be the main things that you would think are important for them to focus on? Well, I would say the first thing is to slow down. Yeah. And um, it's good that you repeat that. (laughs) And by slow down, I mean a couple of different things, actually. I mean, just let's like think about kissing. When you're kissing, start slow and soft. And at a slow pace and with a soft mouth and just lips. And then you slowly build, like let things build slowly. And that goes really with whatever you're doing to any body part. So there's a, it's not just that, that your first touches might be slow and soft, which is good, but that your whole progression from start to finish takes its time. And about being present, I think is another piece. So if you are kissing her thigh but you're thinking i'm getting to the pussy i'm going to the pussy i'm just kissing her thigh because i know i'm supposed to do that before i get to the pussy we know that we get the intention we get the energy so if you're kissing a thigh be kissing the thigh be present to the deliciousness of the thigh so it's really about being present to what's actually happening as opposed to but i'm doing this because i want to get here because i want to get her turned on enough so that we can fuck and then like if that's the agenda and you're sort of always pushing for that we feel it and it actually tends to close us up so you want to open us up i think that's a good one really learn to read her signals and encourage her to give bigger and clearer signals obviously she's just lying there like a dead fish and not giving you any signals if you're doing something pleasurable to her encourage her to if there's something she really likes to move a little to make a little sound 
that will actually enhance her own pleasure. But we need to give our partner signals. And, and so getting those clear, if she wants you to do something faster or harder or slower or softer, she might not be able to tell you that because she doesn't want you to feel criticized and she yeah. doesn't want you to like you think she's doing a bad job. So you can ask, and we love a yes or no A or B question. Not something that makes you think because that takes you out of trance, but this is soft, this is hard. Which do you like better? Or this is, do you like this slow touch or do you like it medium, slower, medium, here or there? Or are you ready for me to go here? That is really hot because we get to tell you without having to go through all that. Um, not quite ready. Or I love the slow. Or slow is good, but I fast is good too. <laughs> you know? So make it easy for us by asking really simple questions. But don't ask, what do you want? Yeah, it's it's better if you were leading. Yeah, yeah. Ask leading And she can questions. say, yeah, I like that. Yeah, I want more of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, not so much of that. Exactly. So, yeah. But don't just say, what do you want? Because we don't know. And that involves a lot of thinking and direction, which we don't really want to give and you don't really want to take. <laughs> right? right. So it's about how we do that dance of who's leading, what's happening and how we can communicate so we can dance really gracefully together. That's, that's really great. Thank you for those three points for the guys. Hey. Thank you so much for making your time available for this today and sharing your ideas. And you've obviously been doing this for a long time. And it's really great to get a bit more of a female perspective because we don't we often don't think about where they're coming from, especially when it comes to their different stages of sexual development, basically. Well, I think that that's all really good stuff. And I'm, I'm happy, happy, happy to share because that's my mission. I'm on a mission. This is it. Thank you very much, Sherry. And I just want to mention... That my new book, Succulent Sex Craft, Your Hands-On Guide to Erotic Play and Practice. Um, we're having a big virtual book launch September 14th through 16th. Anyone who buys the book in those dates has access to what's now well over $1,000 of free goodies that my various sex teacher and other kinds of teacher friends are giving. So uh-huh. it's a really... Where can the guys find out more about that? If you give the like the basic free points of the book. Yeah, well, it's about becoming erotically skilled. It's for men and women. It's for people who are solo and partnered. I guess the short version, it's about learning to play your instrument. It's about learning how all the tools you've got to uh, expand your ability to have extraordinary sets and ultimately become like a master musician, erotic virtuoso. Everyone has that ability. So if this is the, the map and the guidebook and gives you lots of things to think about and play with and practice. Also, there's even a, a web component of the book because this is going to be like an ongoing thing. So anyone who buys the book gets access to a special part of my website, but there's even more practices and that's going to grow into something interesting. We'll see with that. Great. So we'll have links to your site and in, in the show notes so the guys can Great. find you. Yeah. And you can find me. You can also intimateartscenter.com is our website. Yeah, you find all the books and blogs and articles and lots of tons of stuff on my website to look at and read. So go there and play. Great, Sherry. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Have a great day. You too. Take control of your dating life today. Take one idea or one insight from today's episode and apply it today. Don't wait. Do it today. That's all it takes to change your life step by step, episode by episode. 
Learn more about what I, Angel Donovan, and my team do at DatingSkillsReview.com. How we help men like you take control of their dating lives.